Here's a story that we were sent uh, by our friends down the hall at Rock 101 a week or so ago. It's from CNN. And let me just read you the opening part of the story by way of introducing our first guest. After a long day of working from home, Hadley Clark spends her evening hours mindlessly swiping through her phone. She powers through her usual scheduled 9.30 p.m. bedtime in favor of online shopping and social media scrolling. Before Clark knows it, the clock reads 1 a.m. She eventually dozes off and wakes up the next morning exhausted, her phone on her nightstand blaring her alarm at 6 a.m. This cycle of staying up late and regretting it the next day is all too familiar for many people even before the pandemic. In recent years, the phenomenon has been dubbed revenge bedtime procrastination. That's a long introduction. Uh, The person uh, who is the subject of the story on CNN is Hadley Clark, who is a researcher and biomedical expert with a group called Fast Cures in Alexandria, Virginia. Hadley Clark joins us. Good morning and welcome, Hadley. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, it's great to have you with us. How did it feel being the subject of of a story like that? And all of a sudden, there you were for the whole world to see. (laughs) Well, I thought it was a, a good modality for me to kind of raise awareness about this issue. Tell us a little bit about Fast Cures and the Milken Institute where you work, because you are in the healthcare business peripherally uh, with a great deal of attention of, of your career focused on patient care. Yes, so we, Faster Cures, a center for the Milken Institute, we're actually a nonpartisan, nonprofit think tank specifically focused on biomedical research and innovation. So biomedical research is what uh, sleep patterns boil down to being all about, uh, don't they, Hadley? Yes, absolutely. And so I'm certainly not a sleep expert by any stretch of the imagination, um, but this is definitely something that I've noticed has sort of impacted my life since the pandemic so let's talk about this now did you were you aware you were being in the biomedical research biz but probably uh, be aware of the phrase revenge bedtime procrastination before all of this it's brand new to me and i'm betting the farm to most of my listeners this morning so how long has it been around I think it's actually been around for quite a while, but just like you, I only first learned about this recently as well um, from a friend with a couple young kids. She was really struggling to find time for herself each day. And then once she kind of uh, told me about it, I felt like it kind of popped up everywhere in social media and um, the news. So basically, uh, the phenomenon has to do with uh, people who are, uh, in many cases, as is your case, Hadley, working from home uh, and a a bit of a workaholic and uh, also uh, trying desperately in the midst of that work ethic and all of the to-do list to find some time for yourself. And those that time for yourself inevitably comes at the end of a very long work day, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm very, very lucky that I have the ability to work from home in the midst of this, um, you know, challenging time. And I love my job and I'm really dedicated to it. And I don't necessarily feel stress or pressure um, regarding time, okay. but I just kind of plow through the day. And then by the end of the day, I haven't really done anything for myself. Right. Um, and so I kind of found myself uh, in the evening just 
sort of mindlessly scrolling to not only um, do something that I felt was relaxing, but also in in some sort of twisted effort to de-stress. Ah, so now, but for relax now for relaxation purposes, uh, some people, for example, will go off and play a video game of some kind for an hour or two. If that isn't your distraction preference, uh, where would you go? Just uh, looking through uh, TikTok, Facebook, uh, the platforms, the social media stuff. Exactly, I think um, a lot of that is just sort of mindless. Mm-hmm. Um, and- yeah. Even though it's it's actually preventing you from from going to sleep, it, in some sort of weird way, I felt like it was relaxing me and almost preparing me for bed. Um, but I felt like I was staying up later and later and later doing this sort of activity um, and just sort of watching YouTube videos or kind of falling down the rabbit hole on social media. Indeed. Well, you know, but it's interesting because when you talk to parents and parenting experts, Hadley, they'll tell you that the the best thing you can do for your children is to create routines. And the easiest way to get your kids to go to bed every night is to have a, an official bedtime routine. First, we have a bath, then we read a story, then da-da-da-da-da, and then we turn out the lights. That kind of rhythm and routine actually is necessary, as it turns out, for grown-ups, too. And so uh, what I suspect, what I hear is you attempting to create some kind of routine that works for you, A, distracts you from the, from the work, because you do need to change gears, and secondly, helps you wind down. Yeah, definitely establishing a sleep promoting routines such as, you know, reducing screen time before bed, <laughs> um, stretching, right, exactly, stretching or even meditating is something that um, I've recently started trying to do and incorporate. And then also, you know, this sort of helps prepare and give signals to your body that you're ready for sleep. Right. Um so you're the biomedics person, and you understand the relationship between routine and uh, and and uh, cycles and, and biorhythms and all of those details that we kind of feel but don't study or, or take apart much. How, because you know what you're doing, how have you been able to uh, remedy this uh, mindless scrolling, or you still find yourself at two a.m. some mornings going, I shouldn't be doing this. I think self-awareness has been really helpful. So so first step is just acknowledging, oh, I probably shouldn't be doing this. Mm -hmm, And -hmm. then exactly what you mentioned about a routine. So I've started making sure that even on the weekends, rather than sleeping in, I've been trying really hard to stick to the same um, morning wake-up time and same evening bedtime. So Uh not staying up really late on a Friday or Saturday night and making sure that I wake up at the same time. And then, again, for me specifically, making sure that I put that phone down and even limiting TV time before bed as well um, in favor of reading a book um, or also kind of stretching, breathing exercises, I find very, very helpful. Mm. Now, what about younger people? You're a professional person. You're a working woman with a great job that you clearly love. So you're a little, uh, uh, you're not a teenager anymore. What would you say to parents, though, listening right now who have teenagers or younger, younger members of their families with their own devices, tablets and phones and whatnot, who uh, frequently uh, will be caught uh, scrolling, swiping, etc. well past the appointed hour? 
Yeah, I think, again, going back to that routine and the nice thing about, you know, having others within your family, you can kind of be accountability partners together. Mm -hmm. I think if a parent is demonstrating behavior, it's really easy for, you know, a child or a teenager to kind of mimic that behavior, too. So if everyone's on their phone before they go to bed, it's sort of deemed acceptable. So I think challenging each other together and making a family bedtime routine would be really helpful. Okay, but then of course the, there's a, there's the inevitable teenage um, defiance quotient that regardless of what uh, attempts are made, there's going to be look. Um, uh, do you, have you, you 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 get to a point where you say either the device gets confiscated or turned off? Your call, but this is gonna be, this is what it's going to be. Right. And uh, certainly someone who is myself not a parent and then also, you know, not a, not an expert with teenagers, I think that might actually be a great idea. Sure. Um, definitely up to the individual parent. For right. Sure. Right. Leave the leave the, the ultimate decision in their hands. But the consequences are cre- pretty clearly spelled out up front. We're talking about something called revenge bedtime procrastination uh, with Hadley Clark, who is an associate director at Faster Cures, a center of the Milken Institute in Alexandria, Virginia Hadley is involved in biomedical research professionally and is the subject of a, a story on CNN that came to our attention, courtesy of our friend Craig Thulner down the hall at Rock 101. And, and it's all about this pen, revenge uh, bedtime uh, stuff is Hadley mostly sleep deprivation, sort of self Im- self-imposed sleep deprivation by people uh, basically looking to find a little me time in, a, in, in the midst of a very busy agenda would that sort of summarize it accurately yes so people just trying to sacrifice sleep to reclaim time back in their day by doing something that they enjoy now according to the story though this really wasn't much of a thing in your life until the pandemic and the change to your work routine that caused you to then begin working from home and that change in routine was a, a sort of the preamble to this whole business of uh, revenge bedtime procrastination for you personally. Do you figure that that's happened to a lot of people who have been now for many months, Hadley, working from home like you? Definitely. I think a lot of people have either, like myself, just kind of been in denial and refusing to accept the new normal, mm-hmm. if you will. But also a lot of the things that we do for pleasure or that we use as stress or coping mechanisms, we're not able to do anymore, right? You can't go out. You're, you know, we're in various stages of, of lockdown in the U.S. Right. Uh, you can't, you can't um, visit friends and family um, or even do things like, you know, go to a restaurant. So I think people are really struggling to do what they typically do to kind of de-stress or things that are considered what you said, me time. Sure. And so you find new ways to satisfy the need for that me time. Exactly. And I think a lot of people have kind of gone through every single show they can possibly binge online. (laughs) Turns out there is an end to Netflix after all, huh? Exactly, exactly. And so I think people are sort of turning to more short form platforms like TikTok or, or Instagram Um, you know, where they haven't watched all the episodes, it's impossible. Um, So I think that's where a lot of infinite scrolling comes from um, in bed at night, preventing you from sleeping. And it's and it's it's a lot of it, as you said, you use the adjective mindless. It really is. There's no purpose to it other than just sort of kind of checking out what's going on. 
Yeah, I mean, kind of going back to the pandemic, it's really scary and it's very stressful and, and people are dealing with some sort of level of collective trauma, right? It's impacted people in a very deep way. And, um, you know, I can't watch like a, a, a murder mystery on TV anymore. It's just too stressful. Mm. And so I think that we're kind of a little bit not only in denial and not wanting to accept this new routine, but also trying some way to, to deal with everything that's going on, right? Um, and doing something mindless um, can kind of give you the illusion of, of de-stressing or almost preparing you for sleep, sure. even though in reality it's preventing you from sleeping. So one of the things that, they, and they talk about how, how to, 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 once you figure out what's going on and you're sort of perpetually tired and, and, and realizing that a lot of it have to do is having to do with a self-imposed routine that you've discovered yourself being involved in with all of this late night flipping and scrolling and all the rest of it. Uh, so there are ways to get around what they call, what the experts call, sabotaging your sleep. And one of them is focusing more in the daytime hours, Hadley, on taking breaks and getting physically active. When you're working from home, you're not being as active as even as you would be just going to the office and back every day. Yeah, I mean, my commute personally, going back and forth from Virginia to Washington, D.C., I had a considerable walk um, ahead of me every day. And you know, virtually going from that as well as going to the gym and then doing nothing right. was a big adjustment for my mind and my body. So right now I'm really trying to catch some like quick, um, easy workouts that I can do in my apartment without disrupting my neighbors, right, right. minimal equipment, um, because gyms are closed. And I think that's definitely helped. And also it's, you know, helping me with my work too. I feel a little bit more re- refreshed through the day. Um, rather than just kind of sitting still like a bump on a log. Exactly. So tell us, talk to us a little bit here because we're curious now. Uh, there you are in suburban Washington, D.C., across the river in Virginia. What's, what's the lockdown status this weekend for you, Hadley? You mentioned a few moments ago, for example, that you can't go out to a restaurant for, for brunch on a Sunday morning, which is pretty typical behavior. Are all the restaurants completely closed in your area? So right now in Virginia, not all the restaurants are closed. Some of them are open with sort of um, unique restrictions about, you know, how many people can be in the restaurant and be socially distant. But I think at least for me personally, especially the field that I'm in, I just can't sort of for me, the juice is not worth the squeeze. The risk is not worth um, worth it right now. So um, me and most of my family and friends, regardless, we're sort of just staying home and trying our best to only go out when we really need to, um, to go to the grocery store or, um, you know, get supplies just to be safe. Mm, that's a great line, by the way. The juice is not worth the squeeze. I hadn't heard that before. It's just delightful. Uh, so, and again, uh, is it, uh, do you envision, for example, uh, it working from, we're starting to hear uh, in this corner of Canada, for example, Hadley, that uh, work from home uh, r- routines are likely to remain in place until at least this fall. Is that likely in your life and in your area as well? Yeah, I agree. I feel like it's a moving target, quite honestly. But I do think that working from home will be here to stay. I mean, if you look at a lot of these larger, specifically tech companies, they are really promoting the flexibility of working and, and, um, you know, working from home and and living in different areas, right, outside of some of these main cities. So I think even if we do continue to work from home mandatorily through the fall, 
I think there will be definitely some hybrid opportunities of working remotely for a few days a week, maybe being in the office for a few days a week in the future, long term. Yeah, that's what I'm hearing, too. That's, that seems to be the consensus, at least up here, that uh, ultimately, when it all shakes out and the, the restrictions are removed and the companies have the flexibility once again to uh, own their workplace policy, uh, it's likely that there will be some kind of hybrid arrangement where you'll work from home maybe two or three days a week, but they'll want you in your share in the office at least a day or two per, uh, per week, and that tends to relate to productivity as much as anything else. Yeah, agreed. And I think, you know, it'll be a really great option for a lot of um, people like myself, you know, who have quite a long commute. Um, Even though it's only a couple miles to D.C., the traffic is is pretty horrendous. And I do use public transportation whenever I can. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, eliminating that commute does give you more time during the day for your work. So that's another thing that's nice. Although I will say I never thought in a million years that I would miss my D.C. metro commute, um, taking a bus and subway to and from work every day. But I do. I, I miss that time that really bookended my work day that had a definitive start and a definitive end. And now things kind of blur together, which, again, it's cyclical. It's all kind of contributed to this bedtime revenge um, procrastination. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because a lot of the time that you're especially coming home from work on the bus and on the subway or whatever it might be, uh, that's when you sit there on your phone doing all that swiping and poking around that you end up now doing after all your work is done at one o'clock in the morning. Exactly. And honestly, that was sort of the time that I would uh, kind of mentally unwind, right? And in preparation for getting home, meeting friends for dinner or going to a bar after work. But I don't have that anymore. I literally go from from my kitchen table back to my kitchen table. (laughs) Um, So it's it's quite a challenge. (laughs) Well, Hadley, you sound like you're handling it pretty well. And you're awfully a good sport for being the subject of this story. And I don't imagine I'm the only person that's followed up once you uh, you made it on CNN to find out a little bit more about what's going on. Bottom line for you and a lot of other work from home types is uh, sleep patterns matter. Once you discover that you're interrupting your unnecessarily you start to do something positive about it right exactly i think taking back control and making sure that you remind yourself that you're in control of your of your schedule as much as possible i think is really important indeed it is hadley clark thanks so much for this uh we uh, enjoyed our your conversation very much it's wonderful to have you on and we appreciate your time my pleasure thanks for having me it's our pleasure too and stay well okay Thank you. There's Hadley Clark joining us from the Milken Institute in Alexandria, Virginia, where she is working from home and trying very much to avoid revenge, bedtime procrastination. I was listening to Emily's forecast there talking about uh, rain ending by noon, showers this afternoon, as if Vancouver people are supposed to go, oh, well, that'll make a big difference. (laughs) It's the same thing. It's just weather terminology. Laura Jones is a long-time I'm Vancouver, right? Who gets, I guess, the difference between rain and showers? Laura, good morning. Welcome back to the show. <laughs> good morning. I certainly do get the difference between rain and showers, and I 
I think I prefer the showers. I think I do, too. Laura, by the way, friends, is the executive vice president and chief strategic officer with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, who jumps in on the show every now and then on a Sunday, because Sundays tend to be the days when they have uh, uh, basically digested all of the latest survey information as they continue to canvas small business members across Canada. And a couple of things this morning. Uh, Most importantly, I think, Laura, the announcement uh, from your federation this week saying nearly two-thirds of Canadian small businesses would consider using COVID-19 rapid tests in order to remain open. That's a significant number, isn't it? Yeah, there's strong support for things like rapid testing and um, anything we can do really uh, to be more creative about getting things more open. Now, we're fortunate to live in a part of the country where we are more open than, say, um, those poor small businesses in, in Toronto, yeah. Peel region, who've mm-hmm. just been told that they're, you know, they're going to be locked down I- until March 9th. And they've already been, for some of them, this is, you know, they're, they're on, they're working on, on, um, 161 days if you're a retailer of lockdown if you're indoor dining 262 days for gyms and indoor dining and you know here here in bc we've been you know we've we've had a much steadier approach um to the pandemic and as a result we've seen more businesses open and we've seen more businesses back to um normal sales but things are still pretty um pretty tenuous here as well um but i think we really need to get more creative about having tools beyond just 14 day quarantines and and lockdown right um in order to to deal with this uh we're almost a year in and you've got a lot of businesses who are very, very fragile. And um, so, yes, we've had to focus on the health side of this. Um, but I think we need to also be very focused on the economic side of this as well. And that means creative tools like, like, like rapid tests. Why not? We have learned that there is an enormous supply of rapid test kits in Canada, and for some reason, both governments, uh, governments at both levels, federal and provincial is where it matters, because the provinces actually deal with delivery of health care. Feds help establish policy, but combined, they have not leaned on testing as much as I think a lot of Canadians would have expected them to. So, in the absence of that, A, there's a ton of material around. We've got lots of kits. Uh, and if uh, Would businesses then, Laura, do you think, have to buy those kits in order to uh, be in a position to test clients and customers? Yeah, I mean, that, there's still a lot of um, questions that need to be answered and probably different models that would evolve um, around this. But, you know, one model is that you could have your, say, say your employees um, ask them to get tested a couple of times a week at a local drugstore. Right. Um, those, that's a model that, that could work. Um, although there'd have to be some red tape cleared up in British Columbia because right now that, that model would only work in Ontario and Alberta. There's some a little bit of red tape in there for the, you know, if you wanted to get tested at, say, shoppers or, or a, another drugstore. But, but let's assume that can be dealt with. Um, you know, that, that, and then the business owner could tell their customers, hey, my employees are regularly getting t- right. tested. And that might encourage a little more consumer confidence. 
it might allow for bigger gatherings over time. Um, again, you know, I, kn- I know there needs to be some experience with this and we need to see how it would how it would work. But I imagine there'd be all kinds of uses that we can't even think about today um, that would help keep us safer. I think from the health officials perspective, um, it seems like the fear is that there are some false negatives um, on these tests, a higher right. level of false negatives than than with the and, you know, that that's certainly a fair concern. Um, but I would imagine that would be dominated by the, you know, early um, cases, asymptomatic cases that are being identified through these te- tests. And, you know, people can get educated on these things. I mean, <laughs> who thought that we'd all be wearing masks a year ago? Sure. You know, we've been educated and, and you know, for the most part, people are, I know there are some who, who grumble a lot and others who, you know, are, are really obstreperous and don't want to do it at all. But the majority of us are, you know, are, are doing it. We're doing our part and we're wearing our masks. And I, I think um, we can be trusted to understand um, that we still need to do these other things, even if we have a negative on a rapid test, that, you know, that there is a higher level of false negatives on those tests. Sure. Laura, were there particular sectors of the Canada Canadian small business uh, economy that prefer or are most enthusiastic about uh, being part of a testing program? Sure. Well, you know, think about social services and in that category, you've got things like dentists, uh, chiropractors, oh, of course. massage okay. therapists, huge numbers um, in that category, 71% saying, hey, I would actually use it. Right. Um, this isn't even, and this goes beyond support. This is saying not just do I support it in general, in theory, but I would actually consider using it in my business. Hospitality, so restaurants and hotels, um, and, you know, they're interacting with different people. So that, that makes sense. Um, you've got 70% support there. Um, construction, um, hair salons, dry cleaners even, um, gyms, arcades. And again, I think for any business where there are larger gatherings and this might potentially down the road help them open faster, um, that, you know, there's huge support there for, um, again, not just the rapid test, but more generally getting more creative in how we are going to, it looks like we're going to be living with this virus for a while. I mean, we're not, um, you know, the vaccines are proceeding slowly. And even with vaccines, there's some uncertainty in some areas about variants. And so if that's the case, that we're going to be living with this virus for a while in one way, shape or form, we've got to get creative about how we can um, uh, stay safe, Um, but also get back to more of our um, activities, get back to seeing each other, get back to doing things. And this isn't just for business. Right. This is also, you know, there are more and more studies now about the mental health impacts of this. I mean, you know, keeping teenagers away from their friends, for example, is, is really challenging for them. Indeed. Uh, I went to the dentist the other day, as a matter of fact, and uh, I had to fill out the form, had, you know, check all the boxes. No, no, no. Have you been uh, the, the typical COVID questionnaire? They also took my temperature before they would let me uh, proceed any further into the office for my treatments and so on. So they're already there. Uh, and I'm sure, and the technology, especially here in British Columbia, for one of these 15-minute turnaround rapid tests already exists. So uh, I didn't mind having my temperature taken if it and if I needed to go you know spit into a tube and sit for 10 minutes before I could be declared okay that would have been fine too except for one problem there's no seats in the dentist's office anymore you have to stand in a corner but the the idea being Laura that I think on both sides of the equation behind the counter the merchant in this case the dentist 
anxious to, to have my business and me in need of seeing the dentist, happy to participate in having my temperature taken. And if it necessary, a 10 minute wait on a, on a rapid test, no big deal. It's, it's almost mask like in terms of, okay, if that's what it takes. Well, that's right. And if it identifies some of the asymptomatic cases, you didn't know you had it. Yeah. And and then you find out through a rapid test that you have it, then you're not, um, you know, spreading all your germs around the dentist office. Um, and you're identifying, you you know, and then you can go and get the, the other test. But my, my understanding is that, that you know, they're, they're pretty much, if you've been identified as positive on one of these rapid tests, there's a pretty high you know, correlation between that and being identified on on the um, PCR test. Sure. And then you get identified and you're isolating faster. That, you know, that's good for everyone. So, uh, um, again, it's hard to understand why we wouldn't be more creative in this space now, um, a year in. I understand why this wasn't deployed, you know, first wave when we were, there were still a lot of things we had to understand and we're figuring out. Um, but we're almost a year in. And as I said, the fragility of business is not something to be taken lightly. I mean, you look out there and, you know, it may seem that everything's okay, but one of the sobering survey results that I've seen recently is that 70% of small businesses are agreeing with the statement that the subsidies from government right now that they're getting are critical for their business's survival for 2021. Indeed. Well, you know, ask yourself, how much longer can those subsidies, um, you know, how how much longer do we want to be doing this? Do we want to be really, um, you know, at at a record pace kind of subsidizing things in the economy? I think we have to be careful about that, that things 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 are are not as good as they seem because the the people they're heavy subsidization going on right now right. from the government and also the Bank of Canada is buying up a lot of government bonds. So, um, you know, we have to keep that in mind, too, as we think about being creative about getting us back out there and doing what we need to be doing. And last month, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business revealed that one in six small businesses is at risk of closing before the end of the pandemic, putting two and a half million jobs at risk. To help small businesses survive COVID-19 crisis and, more importantly, to recover, the CFIB presented Finance Minister Christian Freeland, Freeland rather, and all members of Parliament with a six-point plan based on feedback from its small business members right across Canada. With the details of the plan, Laura Jones, Executive Vice President and Chief Strategic Officer of the CFIB. Let's go through those six points that you tried to impress upon Minister Freeland the other day, Laura, uh, and, and I'll, I'll turn it over to you. Great. So, you know, the first part of the plan, of course, we're wanting to get the economy back, um, you know, back to, to normal. And, and we're all hoping for that when vaccines are, are here and we're able to get back. But until that time, and for as long as we have restrictions in place, um, we believe we need to extend and expand the COVID-19 relief for small businesses. So the extend part of that is, you know, a lot of the relief expires in June. Right. And so, I, and it looks like we're going to be, you know, we're going to be in a situation where we've got restrictions uh, well beyond that. So 
that's going to be important for, for businesses. And the expand is there are still small businesses that don't have access to much, if any, support. So think about a business that opened uh, its doors in March of 2020 mm-hmm. or April of 2020. Um, they haven't been able to access the rent subsidy or the wage subsidy, and that's something that's long overdue to be fixed. So, And there are a number of other smaller fixes to those programs um, that are needed, but that's, that's one good example. So extend and expand the, the relief um, until the restrictions come off and give businesses that assurance that it will be there is, is the number one thing on our list. Okay. Um, and then if we go to number two, this one is kind of a common sense one, moratorium on any new taxes or costs. So no new taxes or new costs for small business. They're very fragile. They cannot afford anything right now. Um, no new taxes, please, please. Oh, okay. um, number three um, would be, you know, the debt forgiveness has really been um, gone over well. This is through the Canada Emergency Business Account largely, um, but uh, businesses have a lot of debt. So any policies on debt forgiveness and allowing for longer loan terms, um, very helpful. So we've impressed uh, that upon the finance minister. Um, we also think there should be um, good incentives for em- to get employees and employers reunited. So um, any kind of um, incentives, uh, tax incentives that help employers get their employees back, mm-hmm. um, helpful for everybody. Red tape, let's get rid of as much unnecessary uh, red tape as possible. That's always high on business owners list. And then the other thing that may surprise people a little bit is you know, we're actually saying hold off on any consumer incentives. People talk about things like sales tax holidays mm-hmm. as a way to stimulate the economy. But let's hold off on that until businesses can be fully open and benefit from that. Because right now, particularly in Ontario, um, you know, if you did that right now, it would be Walmart and Costco sure. who would get the benefit um, and Amazon, but your small businesses would lose out. So that's our six-point plan. And, um, you know, lots of details. It's a, it's a pretty long uh, submission. It's about, uh, I think, it's about 20 pages uh, with all the details. But that's the, that's the high-level view. And, and, and for the point of the being uh, the point of the 20 pages, of course, being to get at least the consideration of the Minister of Finance and uh, the inner circle in the cabinet to have uh, Canadian or small Canadian businesses as a priority as they develop their economic recovery plan. Laura, I've only got literally a minute left, and I wanted to return to something you were talking about earlier in our first segment about testing and vaccines and all of that. Uh, what, uh, in terms of employment, your uh, ability to uh, compel employees to have vaccines in order to create that kind of safe workplace or retail environment where you can go and everybody in this store has had their shot. No problem. Uh, how about compulsory vaccines? Well, you know, I think there's a lot of discussion that still needs to be had on the compulsory um, vaccine uh, side, mm-hmm. but there's no question that that's the that's the next that's the next frontier. What we're hoping is that at least we can get some of these new tools like rapid tests in place. Um, and while we're having those discussions so that we can keep as many people safe um, and, and as possible while keeping things as open as possible. And that keeping things as open as possible, I think, needs to be we need to put more weight on that now. Uh, good point, too. And of course, the discussion can go on for a while as our vaccine rollout is uh, rather on the slow side. Laura Jones, always a pleasure when you get up early on a Sunday morning and jump in on this program. We do appreciate it each and every time. Thank you. Thank you. I always love coming on. 
There's Laura Jones, who is the Executive Vice President and Chief Strategic Officer of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and you can learn more about them at cfib.ca. According to a new study conducted by Polera for the people at IG Wealth Management, almost half of Canadians who are not currently retired say the pandemic has made them rethink what their retirement will look like and how they will get there. Here to talk about the details of this particular study from IC Wealth Management is Senior Vice President Brent Allen, joining us from London, Ontario. Mr. Allen, Brent, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Sterling. Thank you for having us today. Well, it's good to have you with us. Uh, this is. Uh, were you surprised to find out that uh, a, a significant number of Canadians uh, unretired at this point, going through this pandemic experience together, are rethinking their retirements? Did that surprise you, Brent? I think what has surprised us uh, considerably is the amount of individuals that wanted to spend more of their time uh, at home in retirement rather than in a retirement facility or an independent living community uh, with relation to retirement. Uh, It's not surprising in some ways that I think we're all feeling a little more vulnerable right now. Uh, The idea of spending home in uh, or our retirement rather in our relative safety of our homes may seem appealing, uh, especially with some of the news that we've seen with some of the retirement residences and and long-term care uh, challenges we've had over the past uh, 12 months. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think uh, the, the, the long-term care home lesson, uh, and it's coast-to-coast, coast, it's not unique to any region of the country at all either, is it, Brent? It is a lesson we have collectively learned that that perhaps is not the most desirable environment for uh, retirement. Uh, so uh, what percentage of people do you think were more comfortable with that idea before the pandemic who have changed their minds, Brent? So the survey, the, the way the question was worded in the survey uh, was um, we were asking the question, to what extent do you agree or disagree uh, with following statements that the pandemic has made me want to spend more of my retirement in my home rather than a facility? And so that was actually a 63% increase of all Canadians that were surveyed that uh, really moved towards that direction. Sure. I think, uh, Sterling, one of the things that's interesting to me is we're looking at retirement in your home or retirement in a facility But there really is a continuum here of independent learning or independent living, where you might be in a community with other like-minded individuals that like the same activities as you. Sure. You might be in an assisted living uh, option. Uh, So you have some independence, but you have care. Some people opt for home care, and then you get to long-term care. So I think we want to be a little bit careful on the continuum that – there's lots of options for, for Canadians, which is great um, if you plan for them. Right. And and uh, one of the options that a lot of Canadians at least fantasize about, Brent, I know I've had my moments, uh, is, you know, well, I'm going to want to cash in my chips and uh, hit the hit the skids and blow town. I want to go live in Hawaii or Tahiti or, you know, somewhere hot and dry where I don't have any of these wintry concerns uh, that uh, most Canadians have to put up with. I'm not alone in that department. A lot of Canadians at least least dream about retiring abroad what kind of reality check has the pandemic provided for people like me absolutely well we're actually seeing a significant number of canadians that said that they would still want to travel in their retirement and certainly escape winter uh, when it's safe to do so oh yeah but many canadians are, are are rethinking whether they actually want to buy a retirement home uh in in a warm uh location right. and so i think two reasons for that sterling One is um, just we're rediscovering our communities around us and the activities that we can do during the winter time. So if you had been traveling in the winter, you you may not have taken advantage of what's around us locally. Mm -hmm. 
And then two, this whole whole shared economy really makes it a little bit easier to uh, get into a rental place uh, for a period of time. It could be two weeks. It could be two months. It could be four months, whatever you want. You could even choose your location, Sterling. You can mm-hmm. go uh, California to Florida, uh, whatever you would desire. So I think people continue to travel, but they're rediscovering home. They're rediscovering relationships close by. Family has been really important through this, uh, as, as you can see for many people. Um, the absence of the ability to get together in person uh, has been a real challenge for many. And so I think with, with that uh, reprioritization of family and flexibility, you're going to see a bit more balance uh, uh, than just moving away uh, for, for the entire winter. Yeah, it's true. I'm an Ontario guy originally, and people from Ontario have summer or winter vacation homes in Florida. Here in Western Canada, people will go to the desert. They go to Phoenix or Palm Springs or places like that where they can drive too, just like Florida. But it's still, uh, a, a lot, and a lot of people do have uh, vacation properties, condos in the desert, that sort of thing. Uh, but I would imagine, uh, given the fact that in many cases, they haven't seen their properties that they've invested significant amounts of money in, many of them haven't seen these properties for a year so in in some case maybe the luster is gone off the whole package it is a real challenge uh, if you've been away from your property and you're hoping uh, that they're looking after it uh, for you on yeah. your behalf and uh, cer- certainly not everyone wants to rent out their home it's a very personal space true uh, you bring up a good point sterling um most canadians view their homes or they have a secondary residence as an investment uh at, at some point they could cash in and use that to help them fund their retirement or be a part of it um, but the financial planning implications, as you said, is their ongoing cost of ownership. Sure. And uh, it's very difficult to take a, a brick out of your home and buy a loaf of bread. And so you need to have some, some fairly solid financial planning in place to understand both the financial responsibilities, but how do you use it effectively to support your retirement, to enhance it, as you've said, uh, to, to, to really get some enjoyment out of it. One of the findings, Brent, that I'm curious about your explaining or fleshing out for us a little bit is that one third of Canadians who are not yet retired now feel the pandemic will cause us to delay that retirement. What's the background behind that one, Brent? Right. Well, as we know, the small businesses in Canada, uh, there's over uh, two million of them that generate uh, extra jobs outside of their own employment. Um, those uh, individuals uh, certainly were impacted by the pandemic. And if you have to dip into your retirement savings or if you're not contributing, say, for a period of a year, because right now the most important thing is to keep the lights on and to keep food on the table and for many people to keep their employees working as best they can, uh, it's not surprising that about a third of Canadians have felt they have had to take a pause or a step back this year in their retirement goals. It, it doesn't mean that they can't make it up over the next five, 10 or 15 years if they plan appropriately. Right. But it certainly is immediate because you have that feeling that I'm, I'm not maybe contributing as much as I'd like to, or, or I, I just don't have the income that I once had, or I have to make sure my business survives this and thrives as it comes out. And, and that's what the focus is. So there's certain uh, individual segments of our Canadian population. Young people were really impacted with part-time jobs and summer work last year. Um, as they were coming out of school. And then you have, uh, again, the service sector as well and travel and, and our economy as a service-based economy really did feel that. So it's, it's unfortunately not surprising that a third of Canadians felt that this may have delayed the retirement. Mm-hmm. But I'm here to say that you, you can catch up, <laughs> you can reimagine it. And if you, uh, if you plan it, you'll, you'll be able to get there, I'm confident. 
And with that in mind, and a final question to you, Mr. Allen, we're grateful for your time this morning. Almost half of people in your survey, again, these are people who are not yet retired, uh, this follows with what we were just talking about here, believe they might need more money in retirement than they had originally thought they would. This is a a lesson learned, perhaps well-learned, in advance, Brent. Not bad. Absolutely. Uh, making sure that you understand uh, where you're spending your money in retirement. It's, it's not a one-time event. Uh, it is something that evolves for you and your activities uh, through retirement. And so as people are starting to fill their days with activities, they realize there's a cost often to do so, whether that's travel or local activities you're doing. And I think the other big piece is an emergency fund. Uh, mm-hmm. So we may have saved enough money for retirement, but what happens if uh, the market goes down or my investments are temporarily declined? Or what happens if uh, we have another situation like this 20 or 30 years out? Wouldn't it be nice to have that extra cushion? And so that's where having that comprehensive plan will make a big difference for most people. So you can figure out how to best use your home and your savings and your pensions and put it all together. So uh, this has just put more focus, I think. I think people have actually figured out their number, Sterling, uh, through this process. And that's why that number has gone up is now I, I know what I'm looking for and I might have a gap that I want to try and fill. Okay, Brad, where can people learn more about this and see uh, the, the full results of the, uh, the retirement study? Because it's, it's, uh, it's important stuff and it, it's, it provides some good food for thought. Where can we find it online? Sure. Uh, the study will be posted uh, on many media outlets. Uh, so you're just looking for the IG Retirement Study 2021. And our website, IG.ca, would have a link there as well. IG. So, uh, we encourage you to check that out. Okay, IG.ca. Well, that's pretty easy. You got it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Brent, we try. <laughs> Brent Miller is Senior Vice President, Financial Services at IG Wealth Management, IG.ca. Easily found. Joining us this morning from London, Ontario. Brent, thanks for this. Interesting stuff. We appreciate your time. Thank you, Sterling, and uh, be well and stay safe to all your uh, to all your listeners. Same to you. There's Brent Allen from IG Wealth Management. A couple of websites open in front of me from the government of Canada. Here's a quote: The e-file program is now closed for the electronic filing of your client's initial and amended T1 personal income tax and benefit returns. E-file and refile services will reopen Monday. February 22nd, 2021. That's the government of Canada. The other one is at debtsolutions.bdo.ca. And this one is entitled, What You Need to Know About CERB Tax. Here to talk about that part from BDO Debt Solutions is insolvency trustee Jennifer McCracken. Jennifer, good morning. Good morning, Sterling. It's good to have you back with us. You've done a fine job at your company of uh, putting all of this stuff together in one nifty package. What's the biggest detail to remember about CERB, Jennifer, aside from the fact that, as we all know, it was not tax deducted at source? Well, that's actually one of the big uh, impacts for a lot of Canadians uh, that did receive the CERB benefit. We know it's uh, it's very widespread. We had nearly nine million uh, nine million Canadians receive the CERB benefit, and uh, that was one million in BC alone. Mm-hmm. So you're correct; it was not taxed at source, and the benefit was five hundred dollars a week. And many folks would have maximized uh, receipt of the event, the benefit during the full uh, 2020 uh, tax year. And so, uh, keep in mind that the amount that you're going to pay on your 2020 taxes is going to include all the income received. So for folks that are now uh, going to be filing their tax returns, they're going to be getting all their T-slips 
And for any amounts uh, that exceed the basic personal exemption, uh, there is going to be a tax component that uh, they will be required to pay. So if you haven't set that money aside, it could come as a bit of a surprise. Sure. And uh, if that tax debt isn't paid when you file your return, there is going to be a penalty and there is going to be interest charge. And that can be quite costly um, when we're trying to deal with debt. Is there, uh, did they get a form like a T4A? If you're, if you're a recipient of the retirement CPP, for example, at the end of every year, they send you a T4A indicating how much you've received in total. If you are the recipient of any federal benefit program, will you too be receiving a T4A from that program? Yes, that's my understanding. And keep in mind that um, the other part of this situation that's a little bit unique is that CRA last year, late last year, also issued collection letters to a number of Canadians. It was uh, estimated to be about 450,000 advising them that the uh, SERB benefit or the the benefits they received as part of a CRB program, that they were no longer eligible uh, to receive the money. They've actually asked for the money to be repaid. Now, CRA has also backtracked a little bit on that uh, with respect to self-employed individuals because uh, the understanding is that the application process was not clear and um, the the disclosure around income may have not been as clear to Canadians. So CRA has now said that those amounts are not repayable from self-employed individuals. But of course, that does not apply to the 450,000 Canadians that received the letter. So um, there's also that piece that folks need to keep in mind is if CRA has advised them that they should not have received the benefit, right. the full benefit will have to be repaid to them. Yikes. Well, uh, even aside from that, uh, let's go back to, uh, let's suppose that I did qualify for one of those benefit packages, the CERB, for example. How much tax, uh, and, and the benefit you said, 500 a week, so that's two grand a month. How much tax typically, and I know it varies from person to person, but typically, what's the tax rate on 2000 a month? Well, you know, that's a great question, and it's going to vary person by to person, but uh, basically the federal exemption is just over $13,000, and we also have provincial tax rates as well. So sure. if we just use a very simple example, um, so if somebody, um, you know, if you receive three SERP payments, you would, you would be adding an additional $6,000 uh, to your income. So if you had taxable income of $30,000 that year, that the tax payable is going to be about $4,600, and mm. so... Um, um, but the increase of the SERB benefits um, equates to an amount of, say, about $1,200 um, in that scenario. So factor in individuals that received the benefit uh, for the, the maximum time allowed, um, you can see the tax uh, bill go up anywhere you know, to be paying additional $3,000 or higher. Yeah, I was just going to say, we have this phenomenon called bracket creep, where, you know, sometimes, and it happens, it happens in everyone's life. Hey, I got a raise. Fantastic. And then you, and you get your first check and go, gee, what happened to the raise? Well, the raise puts you up a notch. You're now into a different tax bracket, and most of that raise just got eaten up by the tax department. And so this could be a, a, a consequence, too, of having received a federal benefit. If your benefit pushes you up to a cer- beyond a certain threshold, you may end up paying more tax on that benefit in total income than you had anticipated. 
And this this is true. And keep in mind, the CERB program, when it initially came out, there, there, as we know, there was no tax held at source. It was meant to be accessible and quick and get the money into the hands of Canadians. Right. Subsequently, the additional programs that were launched by um, the Canadian government did have a tax uh, withholding of 10%. But keep in mind, as you talk about the tax cream, that may not have been sufficient to pay the taxes. So some Canadians will have seen some of the tax taken off of these CRB benefits. It just may not be sufficient to cover the full tax bill. So there, we may find a lot of Canadians are surprised uh, once the returns are filed and prepared. Uh, they have it, it, a higher tax than what they usually would, would see when they file their tax returns. And uh, there will this, of course, all regardless of whether this, where the income comes from uh, and with tomorrow the tax offices reopening. Uh, and I'm assuming, again, this year, because it changed last year, Jennifer, but I'm assuming this year the government is shooting for the typical April 30th tax filing deadline again. That is correct. So, and then for self-employed Canadians, it's uh, June 15th. So right. you're right. The tax deadline has not changed. And uh, we would encourage folks to get the returns prepared as soon as possible. Get some sense around what is the amount that you owe the CRA if you do have a tax debt. Um, you, you and I talk a lot about the fact that sort of the putting the head in the sand and ignoring the problem is not an approach to deal with your financial life. And certainly it's not an approach we would recommend if you're, de- you're dealing with tax debt to the CRA. Right. You want to be proactive. You want to get a plan in place. And CRA has been clear. I mean, there's an understanding that a lot of Canadians are suffering right now. So if there's a tax that associated with these benefits, they are prepared to work with you. And they've even gone so far to say that for some that have been acting in good faith, that they would be willing to waive penalties and interest. So, you know, you really do need to be proactive. I also do, though, do cautious individuals um, that about dealing directly with the CRAs that if you have other debts or you have a very large tax debt and you have a long history with them, mm. it may be more wise to seek the advice of a licensed insolvency trustee just because, uh, you know, you, you do need to know what your rights are and uh, what you, you could do to resolve your, your entire debt load, not just the debt owing to the CRA. Right, because if you approach them on one matter and there are other outstanding matters, suddenly it's a different conversation, isn't it? It is. And then sometimes folks do get advice, for instance, to liquidate assets that would otherwise be exempt in a bankruptcy scenario, uh-huh. or they're told to use available credit to retire tax debt. You know, that's personally not advice I would necessarily provide to an individual. Obviously, we do things on a case-by-case basis, but, um, you know, the, the tax department has uh, very sophisticated collectors, and they also have a lot of powers in their statute. Um, so you'd want to avoid any um, collection measures that could be detrimental to you. And rule number one, wherever possible, communicate, communicate, communicate. That's correct. Jennifer McCracken, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for doing this. Important information the day before it all begins. <laughs> Thank you for having me, Sterling. There's Jennifer McCracken from BDO First Call Debt Solutions. She is an insolvency trustee. Let's talk a little bit about salmon farming because the announcement in December by Bernadette Jordan, the federal fisheries minister, that 19 salmon farms in the Discovery Islands near Campbell River will be shut down in 18 months has produced some pretty strong local reaction. Quote, this is quite possibly the most impactful careless, reckless, 
thoughtless decision I've ever seen. The federal government has provided zero plans for how this impact is to be mitigated. They have not reached out and they do not care. These aren't communities the government of Canada thinks will help them win an election. That quote attributed to John Paul Fraser, the executive director of the BC Salmon Farmers Association, who uh, say the feds basically left the North Island on the hook with no safety net. We invited Mr. Fraser to join us on the program. He declined. Here to talk about it, though, is a return visit from Bob Chamberlain, who is the chair of the First Nations Wild Salmon Alliance, with whom we've discussed this matter uh, in the past. Bob, welcome back. Good morning. Hey, good morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, Mr. Fraser, uh, echoing the sentiments of a lot of North Island municipal officials, mayors and reeves and people on the uh, that end of the island saying the in the economic impact of the closure of these salmon farms will be significant and long lasting, Bob. Uh, they just didn't think that that was terribly carefully thought through. Well, the outcome that Minister Jordan has provided to the industry is a result of consultation with seven First Nations whose territories that these fish farms are residing in. Right. And the fact that, you know, I've heard and I've read many things from the BC Salmon Farmers Association as well as industry, where they talk about it's a surprise and it was a horrible Christmas gift and these kinds of things. But the fact is, the moment that they enjoyed the privilege of having a license many, you know, years ago when it was issued, they knew this was coming. They knew on December 18th a decision would be made, yes or no, if they would continue. And if, you know, all the things that they're throwing at the federal government, they could use the I statement because they weren't prepared for any of the the outcomes that are now in place to look after their employees. And so, you know, they only banked on one outcome. And to me, that's not good business planning. Bob, how many First Nations people are involved as employees in this undertaking? I'm really not too sure, to be honest. I do know that there are a number of First Nations that have agreements, and there's no question about that, that there are people that find employment directly and indirectly. Uh, but, you know, the I was part of the consultation for three of the seven First Nations in the Discovery Island. Right. And the focus was on food security, about ensuring that, you know, the environments are well taken care of, and that uh, impacts to the way of life of First Nations people is not at the expense of an international company that has employment in our area. It was more a long-term vision about the needs of the people. So is this then uh, a negotiation? Now, he didn't say so in the statement, but I've certainly heard um, statements from people on the north and end of Vancouver Island basically saying the feds have cut a deal with the First Nations, leaving everyone else impacted by it out of the equation. And this is, this is sort of a new tack in government policy. Well, I think cutting a deal is a very inflammatory uh, adjective to use for an outcome of Supreme Court of Canada law and upholding of the constitution of this country by consulting with First Nations. Okay. What they did is they, they listened to what the First Nations uh, presented in front of the minister, and the minister made a decision. And, you know, for many, many, you know, there's a long list of First Nations that will tell you we've been unhappy with the outcome of consultations. Government will say things like we made the decision in the best interest of many and not the few. And so when I think about it and you bring in the Cohen Commission discussion on this about the threats that the industry uh, posed to wild salmon, they say, you know, potentially irreversible. 
And I think the the present climate or the present status of wild salmon in the Fraser is on an extinction spiral. And so it was time for the government to make some hard decisions that's going to look after uh, the wild salmon of British Columbia because we're on the verge of losing them. And once those salmon are gone, everyone that likes killer whales, everyone that likes grizzly bears, they're going to be gone as well. Well, and of course, it's, 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 it is important, to, uh, and as you talk about the declining fish industry, uh, a lot of Canadians, uh, not only here in British Columbia, will be very quick to tell you that this is the same Department of Fisheries that actually managed the cod fishery in Newfoundland, Bob, out of existence. It had disappeared under DFO management. So there's a little cynicism, rather, when it comes to DFO policy as it is applied here on this coast. That's all. Well, there's no question about it. I mean, the mistakes that were made on the East Coast in terms of uh, the Atlantic cod uh, gave birth to the precautionary principle. And, you know, in the consultation process that I was involved with, we learned that the DFO has absolutely no policy to implement the precautionary principle in terms of the aquaculture industry in British Columbia. And so there are many places, and this is where uh, it gets very complicated very quickly. Mm. But when you start to really examine all the details, you wonder how the heck did this industry captivate a federal department and be able to operate as they have with regulations untethered from what they're intended to protect, uh, independent monitoring and reporting and so on. And so what we're seeing now is a federal government perhaps realizing the importance of uh, healthy and abundant wild salmon stocks and now trying to steer the ship away from a, uh, another instance like the cod collapse in eastern Canada. Right. And uh, so part of that uh, is is going to be eventually in the minds of some, I don't know what your feelings are on this, but in the minds of some, the eventual removal of all open pen salmon fish farms in favor of a land-based uh, alternative, which is hideously more expensive, but doable, they say. No, it's true. I mean, there are like 60 to 70 different companies around the world that are making this transition. And, you know, we've seen now that uh, I saw an article in Intrafish where Maui is even considering this. Greek seafoods are considering this. Mm. And so what we're seeing is a natural evolution of industry. And so what's happening now, I believe people's focus on the environment is strengthened so much that they're demanding products that are as sustainable as possible. And certainly open net cage fish farms is decades old technology. It's from the 80s. And so here we are 40 years later with some large companies buried their heads in the sand, unwilling to adjust to what is a horribly diminished now uh, social license. And the governments have been clear ever since the federal campaign, you know, when uh, now, Prime Minister Trudeau talked about a transition to land-based closed containment. The provincial government implemented the UN declaration, and there's a transition of farms there. If the industry is not paying attention, and if they're not making appropriate plans based upon the realities, uh, for them to hoist all of this on a government decision is wrong, and they're just avoiding their own responsibilities to their own employees.
All right, Bob, I appreciate your time this morning. It's always a pleasure to have you on the program. Uh, perhaps next week we'll have an opportunity to speak to the uh, the salmon f- farmers and uh, have an opportunity to hear their side of the story. Uh, it's uh, it, They declined to join us today. Uh, well, let me know if I could be a part of that show as well. I'd love to have a public discussion with them. I, I don't think they're terribly interested in it, which is why I think they declined today. But we'll, we'll take it step by step. And the first step was getting you back, and, and we appreciate that, Bob. Thanks very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. There's Bob Chamberlain, the chair of the First Nations Wild Salmon Alliance. The vast majority of Canadians blame Ottawa rather than provincial governments for delays in COVID-19 vaccine delivery. A new poll suggests the poll was conducted by Leger. Its executive vice president, Christian Bork, is with us with all the details. Christian, good morning and welcome back to the show. (laughs) Good morning. It's good to have you with us. Let's uh, let's break some of these numbers down. Uh, Ottawa taking the big hit for the vaccine rollout rather than the provinces. And that seems logical because even though Mr. Pallister in Manitoba and now Mr. Kenny in Alberta have decided to strike out on their own and cut some side deals for vaccine supply, Christian, most of it comes through Ottawa. Yeah, 69% of Canadians say it's Ottawa's fault because they are, you know, failing to get the, the right amount of doses from the global market. Uh, it, that's combined with the fact that a majority of Canadians, 51%, say we are not confident that Ottawa will meet its objective to have us all, or anyway, all that want, uh, to be vaccinated by late September. So uh, before the news we got this week from Pfizer uh, about uh, upping the, the delivery of doses to Canada, the picture was fairly gloomy. So let's talk about why, uh, because it hasn't remained this way. The You've been polling Canadians very consistently all through this pandemic. And my gosh, Christian, it's close to a year now. When did the, <laughs> when did the confidence in the Fed start to decline? Well, it, it happened in phases. Um, I, I think late in the fall, uh, we saw a decline in, in both federal and provincial government confidence uh, in this crisis. I, if it happens everywhere to all premiers and the prime minister, it must be something about sort of COVID fatigue. I mean, it's, it's tough for Canadians to go through all of this. We see that we measure week to week the state of mental health of Canadians, and it's trending down. Yeah. It's also because of winter. Uh, we had a tough holiday season, and then you know MPs and MLAs uh, are, are going down south when people are told not to leave the country. And all of this together made for a very tough January and February for federal and provincial politicians. Uh, what we're seeing as well is that because of the new variants coming in and sort of the threat that they, that they, uh, that they present, we see the, uh, an uptake in the percentage of Canadians who want to be vaccinated uh-huh. from 69% to 73 And we used to have sort of a wait-and-see attitude towards vaccination. A month ago, only a third of, of Canadians were saying, and give me the first vaccine that's available for me. Right. Now that's over half of Canadians who say, whatever is the vaccine that's out there, I want to take it. So people are waiting for their number to be called up. Oh, so the, the wait and see uh, attitude is diminishing. And I, I, it's probably the variants, isn't it, Christian, with all of these new possibilities? They're all, each and every one of them are scary. And we're, we're desperately trying to track them down, identify them and develop some kind of vaccine to, to combat them. But it's, it's the presence of all of these new variants quite suddenly that is changing attitudes, don't you think? 
Absolutely. And that's combined with the fact that it's been, what, four months now that the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine have been out there and available. And nobody's hearing a lot of news about people growing a third arm or a third eye. So uh, at the same time, probably the confidence that this this vaccine and, and all the reports on the efficacy of the vaccine have been fairly positive as well. So I think the combination of those two um, is basically uh, a lot of Canadians are saying, um, when can I go and get my shot? Sure. Uh, and we're starting to hear, you know, in British Columbia, for example, you can go to the government website and you can see what the plan is. We're still in phase four right now or phase one and, and, and you know, where, where it will move up and what, what each phase represents in terms of groups of the population and so on. But I'm, I'm wondering, though, as we take a look around and Canadians, as you know better than most, are absolutely rabid consumers of media, we know, Christian, where we stand in terms of how the rest of the entire world is doing with respect to percentage of population vaccinated. And we're not very high on that list at all, are we? No. And I think that's part of the reason why we've seen confidence in the federal government go down over the past couple of months. Um, At one point over the holidays, we were sick in that uh, uh, ranking that you just talked about. And last week, we were down to 39. I don't think Canadians want to be 39, but anything uh, in life, let alone a, a vaccination campaign sure. uh, against a deadly pandemic. So I, I think it was time for Ottawa to deliver some good news, which they actually delivered in a way this week. We'll see over the next couple of weeks if that was, it's, if, if it's been enough to restore confidence. But I think um, what needs to happen uh, for the federal government is that people see or actually see in the media, in the news, uh, through our media, that people are actually getting the shots on the ground in the uh, uh, and in the provinces, and I think that probably will take a few uh, a few weeks. Now, in 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 the meanwhile, if they, if some liberal uh, strategists are still considering a spring election, um, I don't know if that would be wise right now. Yeah, well, we have to wait and see. Well, you know that they are considering a spring election, Christian, because you know how badly the prime minister wants one. He is very desperate to have a, a spring election. Whether or not he's going to pull one off remains to be seen. However, they're polling like crazy. And the, the, the news that you were talking about in the news this week, there's been all of a sudden, again, based on declining popularity numbers and the reality of where we stand in relation to the rest of the world on this vaccine business, uh, suddenly the government this week, a blitz of news, gun bans and benefit extensions and distraction techniques all over the place uh, in order to perhaps get us not thinking about where we are relative to the rest of the world on vaccines. How's that working? Well, uh, again, I think they're trying to get some of the attention away from COVID or some of the pressure off the government because it's all been about COVID over the past few weeks. And I think it is an attempt at, at some form of distraction Political strategists call this the the, the dead cat uh, um, uh, principle. Is is that if, if if I'm losing out on an argument and I throw a dead cat on the table, everybody now focuses on the cat. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>, I guess <laughs> they would. <laughs> okay. And it's so so basically, I think it's a little bit what the attempt was made this week was was just that. Uh, but if if they are still considering a spring election. Two things have to happen. I mean, better news on the vaccination front, of course, uh, which we've talked about. The second thing is, um, will there be a budget beforehand? Uh, Now, if they actually table the budget, 
Um, of course, this will again get people focusing on the size of the debt, and, and uh, which will happen to every industrialized country uh, coming out of this pandemic. Right. Uh, but it may not be the focus that they want right now. So are they ready to take the gamble? Uh, I don't know. It seems awfully risky to me. Yeah, indeed. And, and one of the things that's probably going to trip them up were they to go forward is the secrecy that they have insisted upon surrounding this whole vaccine rollout with. Uh, there are quite reasonable requests by various health officials and, and medical uh, researchers, along with provincial premiers, to uh, see some documentation. Let's see what kind of deals have been cut with these manufacturers, not necessarily to criticize the amount that we paid for them, which is likely the max, but the just details, period. And the feds are absolutely adamant about not telling us anything in terms of details at all. That's not healthy for an election uh, preview, no. is it? And and because of the type of transactions we're talking about with, with the pharmaceutical companies, yeah. um, it's the issue worldwide. People in the United States are criticizing the Biden administration for that same secrecy. Um, you know, Israel is number one uh, worldwide in terms of vaccination. Nobody yes. knows how much they paid for those doses. Uh, so all of this is, is basically hurting uh, our federal government, just as it's getting you know, people around the world criticizing their own local government for lack of transparency. Yeah. A Christian, final question, too. And it's so good to have you back on the program. We're grateful for that. In terms of an election uh, and the budget that you've already mentioned, that would indicate some kind of uh, economic recovery framework. Uh, and then many Canadians, and we just had the Federation of Independent Business on with us an hour ago, saying just that. They need a plan. Do you detect a plan of any kind? No, and, and even provincial governments are not really uh, on that page yet. I think they're trying to get the, the number of cases to go down. They're trying to get control over these variants. And everything brings us back to the current sort of second or third wave that we're in now. Um, and I, I think it's basically uh, uh, making it difficult for our governments, the provincial and federal, to actually you know, turn the page and move on to economic recovery. But you are right. Uh, we will need to sense that there's something going in, in the, there's a threat of inflation uh, and other indicators that are not all that positive about the economy. So uh, that, too, will need to happen uh, the sooner the better. Indeed. Christian, thanks for this this morning. And as we if we get a little closer to that election, look for a call from us for another conversation at another time. We do appreciate it this morning. Good to have you on. All right, thanks. Stay safe. There's Christian Barke, Executive Vice President with Leger, the polling group. Seven degrees with a high today of nine or possibly ten. That may uh, be all it will take for many of us to want to go for a walk. And many of us might want to go for a walk at Stanley Park, where it is entirely possible these days you're going to have a face-to-face encounter with a coyote. So then what do you do? Well, let's find out. Danny Piesas is with us. She is the Urban Wildlife Program Coordinator with the Stanley Park Ecology Society. Danny, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Sterling. Thanks for having me over today. Well, it's good to have you with us. Uh, Frequency of coyote uh, interaction, especially in Stanley Park, is way up this Mm -hmm. year. Is Is there a specific identifiable reason why this year we're seeing so many more of them? Well, we're not necessarily seeing more sightings in general. Like, it, it actually matches up quite well with previous years. Um, we're probably uh, getting more interactions, especially of late, of um, 
of unusual interactions uh, of people having been chased and nipped and bitten uh, by coyotes, particularly joggers going through the park. And, right. Uh, yeah, and we're thinking that these are uh, due to two main drivers. One is that coyotes have a natural instinct to chase something that's uh, running from them. Uh, but we don't see joggers chased by coyotes throughout the lower mainland. We or certainly it don't. Ha- happening in Stanley Park at all uh, uh, prior to January. The other driver, then, is the removal of the natural fear that they have towards humans, which uh, results from people having fed them or uh, tolerating their close proximity too much. Yeah. And as we know, wildlife feeding has impacts to their health and behavior and blurs that healthy boundary between wildlife and humans. Uh, Danny, so, uh, the, other, the other theory that's out there with this, and it's possibly active again this year. Recall, mm-hmm. we went through a spring last year. By April last year, which is typically the time of year that animals have their babies, uh, by April mm-hmm. last year, we were all locked down tight. We weren't going anywhere. So all of a sudden, mm-hmm. our outdoors was not populated by us. Uh, in fact, it went back basically to those creatures who were there, uh, who are always there, but who were there a little more uh, without interruption from us, who were therefore mm-hmm. uh, allowed to breed more successfully and therefore produced more babies. Uh, that's uh, just because of non-human interference at that critical time of year. It's possible Again, I hope to God we're not all locked down as tight this <laughs> April as we were last year. Mm-hmm. But it's certainly that the patterns, the rhythms have been interrupted in the animal world as much as the human world by all of this COVID stuff, hasn't it? Mm-hmm. That's a very good point to bring up, Sterling. Um, we, I wish that we had access to more information about visitation uh, through the park, like who... Uh, obviously, we, we weren't having the tourists anymore this past year mm-hmm. uh, from out of town. And so um, there, there were definitely changes in the usage of the park this year. And, and just anecdotally, the kinds of reports and stories we got from people is that they were seeing more wildlife. And and uh, we also had a reduction in, in cars uh, going through the park. They, they had closed um the the roads sure. to cars for a time and so that's right uh, what this does is it allows wildlife to have more corridors or more access to areas where they previously wouldn't go uh, probably because it's it's uh, safer right. and not as scary mm-hmm. um, but you're right it's also breeding season for coyotes which is a uh, interesting timing and actually uh, one of the things I'm trying to uh, provide education for at this time is distinguishing uh, defensive breeding behavior, which is natural to them at this time of year, as you mentioned. Right. Um, but also, uh, but distinguishing that from aggressive behavior, which is unusual and which is causing these attacks on people in the park right now. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk a little bit more about the cause of all of that, because for example, mm-hmm. we had for we've had one uh, situation in Stanley Park where there were fourteen reports of aggressive behavior uh, directed mostly at runners, joggers, and mm-hmm. and at people in motion as opposed to people standing mm-hmm. still. Uh, but after 14 reports focused on presumably one animal, um, there, there appears to be no remediation available. What, what, do, what do the park conservation people do when they hit a threshold where one individual animal is now responsible for more than a dozen events? Mm-hmm. 
Uh, well, I'll have to let the conservation officers uh, speak for for the decision making. But right. they do have a process. They do have a very uh, uh, thorough process of of uh, following a, a decision flow because it's it's a very like a lethal response uh, to remove uh, coyote from an area that that's shown to have this harmful um, tendency towards people. Right. Like that's that's at the very. Uh, it's the very last resort. Like no one wants that, including the officers themselves. And so, um, there, uh, with the initial report, uh, there were some very distinct dis- uh, markings and descriptions of the coyotes right, that right. Uh, had bitten people that mm-hmm. they were able to act on. Um, and so, uh, and uh, very, you know, tragically, like two coyotes had to be killed and put down um, uh, in the earlier incidents, but then. The behavior, um, like uh, the coexisting with coyotes program, which I run, uh, also um, uh, has a reporting system, right? So we uh, continue to receive reports uh, of coyotes being seen in the park, and a vast majority of them are still normal encounters, uh, people just seeing them passing through or glancing at them and going back in the woods. But we were still seeing some of this, we call it habituated behavior, when coyotes lose their fear of people and, and even seek out their presence. Right. And uh, as I mentioned, this is often is most often due to wildlife feeding, them having been fed uh, directly or indirectly uh, in the park. And so they lose that uh, natural boundary with us. And so anyway, we were, we were still seeing this behavior, like coyotes coming up to people who weren't running. They were maybe just walking through a trail and right. then they would be approached by a coyote with a, an appearance of expectation, like it was expecting to be fed. And that's the kind of behavior we absolutely don't want. And we think that coyotes that display this sort of behavior are also the ones that are more likely to run up to and chase and, and bite a jogger, again, because of that natural chase instinct. And we see this every year with bears, too, on the North Shore and, and uh, where, you know, again, people, uh, for some reason, decide that it's cute to feed the wild animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, the bear ends up becoming habituated and uh, being removed if they're lucky. Mm-hmm. So uh, is that the remedy? Uh, inst- I need to take a break, but, but we want to stay with this for just another second sure. here. Is, is that the remedy, uh, Denny? Is it? Is it um, uh, you, mm-hmm. you mentioned that a couple of animals had to be put down. Typically, though, if there is a problem animal, uh, is there not a relocation mm-hmm. process that occurs that's possible short of d- uh, just shooting it? Mm. Yeah, that's, uh, a lot of people have brought that up. It's uh, relocation or, or um, the biological, uh, sorry, the, the um, term from biologists is translocation, which is, yeah, uh, moving an animal to a different habitat. But it doesn't, uh, like studies have shown that it has n- uh, very little success. For one thing, it's a stressful process for an animal and often just the, the transportation itself causes uh, significant mortality, uh-huh. um, but also just thinking about what happens to the animal when it uh, goes into a new place. It's it's at risk. Um, well, the people that are there that now have a habituated animal um, uh, brought into the place uh, uh, are at risk of this animal, and then the animal itself is at risk of predators that are there or other coyotes. Uh, if it's a coyote, that uh, it, it was not. Um, it was not. Uh, uh, condition to to deal with, mm. and so often it's it's just not a good uh, option. Uh, as much as it sounds like it would be, 
Um, but uh, the the we, there's actually so much more uh, before that step of, of the lethal um, last resort option. And, oh, and a lot of it has to do, yeah, a lot of it has to do with restoring the healthy boundary and how can we teach uh, our coyotes or, or uh, local wildlife not to seek out people. And so for coyotes specifically, if we are, obviously we, we want to remove wildlife feeding from the park or any public spaces entirely, uh, but also we want to haze them, which is a term uh, meaning we, we scare them off when we see them. And right. In short, what we do is when we see them, we uh, make ourselves look big and make a lot of noise. Right. Uh, all sorts of things that make us look threatening without being like without causing direct harm to the animal. Talking coyotes in Stanley Park and, well, parks everywhere. Danny Piazzas is with us from the uh, Urban Wildlife Program at Stanley Park Ecology Society. Great website, by the way, uh, Danny, stanleyparkecology.ca, friends, and a whole huge section there on coyotes and what to do. And I want to ask you about reporting feeding animals, Danny, but I did open up the phone line, so let's include a few of our listeners going forward with this conversation, and we'll start in Surrey with Mike on the line. Mike, good morning. Hey, good morning. Um, a couple of points. Um, as far as relocation goes with coyotes, they're not easy animals to cage. And uh, they're coexisting in every one of the lower mainland communities uh, right into the, to the wilderness. So they've been here for years. They're going to be here for years more. Right. If, if you've got a problem coyote and it's, it's propagated by people feeding them and hand-feeding them, the coyote becomes a victim. You can't retrain the population after the fact and say, hey, don't feed coyotes. Sure, right. You know, so if there's one problem coyote, what decision gate in the list of 12 incidents, when is the decision gate to say, hey, we've got to do something about this coyote? That's a good question. Uh, Danny, you, you said already that you can't speak on behalf of the, uh, the conservation people, but you do observe their, their activities. What typically uh, is, is the, the format for when, when these problem coyotes are identified? Right. Uh, and thanks, Mike, as well, for bringing up those points. It's, it's all true. We, uh, so the coexisting with Coyotes program, uh, which I coordinate, is, uh, is the is the let's say that's the front line. It's the education that we provide to the communities because it's the communities themselves that do have the power to have, uh, have coexistence sure. with coyotes or other wildlife. And so um, when that, you know, when we say uh, that fails, uh, then unfortunately that's when the conservation officer service has to come in um, with the, with, in, with an extreme result, right, right. Exactly. And so uh, we work with them in terms of uh, uh, like sharing that information of what's going on in, in particular places. And they have their own framework uh, with, uh, let's say, symptoms, like the, the sorts of observations that they're seeing from, from animal behavior in any case, in any location. And once they're seeing uh, certain symptoms of habituation, whether from coyotes or bears, that uh, it strongly suggests that there are animals that can't go back uh, to, as, you know, to pre-habituation. Right, you, you've got a problem. You've got a problem, coyote, on your hands. So I, I think mm-hmm. the, the, the the implication that Mike had was that in some cases people think it, it's too late. They take too long to make a decision mm-hmm. about a clearly problem animal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. Um, well. 
I, I know that for, for the conservation officer service, which is, uh, you know, their approach would also reflect what uh, the public uh, values have in terms of wanting that to be the absolute last resort. And so the approach, I think, typically is uh, they want to give the animal the benefit right. of the doubt. Every like opportunity, any, but, yeah. Exactly, yeah, okay. yeah. And so the, even for them, I know that the their emphasis is a lot on it. Uh, public education. So before they actually decide, they have to do the site visits, make the assessments, talk to people in the neighborhood first, provide this information All before right. they can, yeah. Let's keep one, one more caller in here. James in Vancouver being ever so patient about waiting. James, thank you for that. Good morning. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I grew up on a ranch in the foothills of Alberta. I've been around coyotes, bears, and cougars my sure. entire life. There's something that's missing in this equation for these coyotes to be becoming aggressive towards people. It's not going to be one year where they've been getting fed, especially during COVID. I don't believe that they're getting fed more during isolation. No tourists. Would have been any other year. So what what has changed in the, in the, in the biome of Stanley Park to make these coyotes more aggressive towards people, what food source has been lost? Ah, uh, good question. I'll leave it there because I, I I've got to give uh, Danny a chance to respond, and we've only got a minute, Danny. <laughs> uh, that's a very uh, complex question, and and you can imagine it's something we've been asking and trying to find out from from all these instances. Because you're right, it, it was uh, like the the uh, tax like just kind of came out. Uh, out of the blue. And the thing from my perspective is uh, even from the summer of last year, I, I know for sure that we had uh, pups that were born in uh, last spring. So they were COVID pups, let's say. Sure. And, uh, and we, we did get a change in visitation in the park um, from, from mostly locals coming in. And uh, I was getting reports of uh, people uh, seeing locals feeding coyotes directly yeah. in the park or uh, or seeing the uh, behavior of these pups um again like coming right up to people non-aggressively but sort of having that look of expectation and so what i was getting from that was that people uh you know maybe locals who were um not visiting the park prior previously who didn't know the etiquette around wildlife or maybe casually feeding them in the picnic area right. or yeah. So, bottom line, don't feed the don't mm-hmm. feed the wild animals. Danny Piazas, I have to leave it there because I'm fresh out of time, and I am grateful for yours <laughs> on a Sunday morning. We'll do this again. Thank Thanks you so much, Sterling, and thank you to the callers too. Bye. Da- Danny Piazas from the Stanley Park Ecology Society. Great stuff. Lots more on coyotes at stanleyparkecology.ca. Three new shows as of this weekend at the Vancouver Art Gallery. With all the details, here's Diana Frundle, the interim chief curator for the Vancouver Art Gallery. Diana, good morning. Welcome. Good morning. It's nice to have you with us. Uh, I had I had some of the shows starting tomorrow. In fact, most of them started yesterday. But either way, they're with us through until late August. So uh, nobody's missed anything. And it's not likely if you want to go see them, you're going to. So let's talk about those three exhibitions that are beginning this weekend. Diana, please. Sure. Um, so we have three new shows, as you said, that opened on the first floor of the gallery. And each explore different themes and offer a unique experience. Okay. But they're all really underlined by uh, storytelling. Okay. And uh, so they're all, are, are they all on the same floor in the same area of the gallery? 
Yeah, yeah. So we have, um, when you enter the gallery on the first floor, you to your right, you have Swinshun, Mythological Time. And this is a, a large stop motion animation and ink scroll painting by a Beijing-based artist, Swinshun. Mm-hmm. And it's focused on its hometown of Fuxin in northern China, which was a coal mining center and a, really a symbol of modernization and prosperity that fired much of China's rapid growth in the 20th century. Um, and then that uh, that work was was intended actually to be accompanied by a, a work that the artist would come out and do in situ. But of course, we eventually realized by last summer that um, that travel would be unlikely, and right. so he made uh, he made us a, an epic 31 meter scroll, which um, on paper, which he sent out and arrived a couple weeks ago that we've installed. So it's it's a a massive testament to the artist's skill in ink painting and his interest in really traditional aesthetics and contemporary um, techniques of, and aesthetics of street art and murals. Diana, is this scroll, how long is the scroll again? How many feet? 31 meters. 31 yeah, meters. Know. Holy smokes. <laughs> feet. Well, well, 30, well, well, 31 meters is actually it's close to a, it's close to 100 feet. It's an enormous thing. So have, you got, it, have you got it all stretched yeah. out along uh, one wall or, or around a room? How, how are you presenting it? Like, a, a, I guess, a semicircle. So you come in, it really sort of occupies the space um, in a semicircle, similar to, you know, you read a scroll and you kind of move along the narrative. Right. And it's um, it's a 2.5 meters in height, so that would be what? Is that three, by three, times by three, so 10? Yeah, that's 10 probably 10 feet, feet tall. Eight, wow, feet. it's monstrous, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, so it's, it's, it is. It is. It's really something to see, to experience. Okay, so that's the first the first of the three new exhibitions, Sun mm-hmm. Sun Jun Mythological Time. Yeah, Sun Shun, yeah. Okay, yeah. what's what's yeah. what's and show then, number um, two? Well the second show really it's highlighting a rich all of these shows are really drawn a lot from our collection. So the Sun Shun videos in our collection. The second show that you enter upon exiting Sun Shun is Stories That Animate Us. Okay. And it's looking at uh, a number of uh, works on paper and, and animations from the gallery's collection, as well as some loans and commissions from local artists and national artists. And this really, um, there's a number of starts that sort of centered by works of Robert Davidson, that, who's known for his Haida creation stories. And he really, the, the works we, cl- uh, we show here are really featuring the raven, um, an important uh, artist in his role in, in Haida cosmology. Mm-hmm. Right. And then there's a local artist, uh, Cindy Mochizuki, and an animation that she made about Amabi, which is a class of mythical spirits in Japanese folklore. And so this, um, this story has regained a kind of new resurgence in Japanese um, social media. And the Japan's Ministry of Health adopted it as a mascot to warn, because the story in the 1800s talks about a harvest to come by this creature of the ocean and, and who also warns against the possible pandemic. Mm. So it's really, it's kind of speaks to the retelling of historical legends as a way of finding solace sometimes in difficult periods like now, but right. also keeping connections to culture alive. Interesting stuff. So that's stories that animate us. That's the second portion. What's, what's part three then? And part three is uh, Pictures and Promises, which is a collaboration between the Vancouver Art Gallery and Capture Photography Festival. So it's um, really focused on lens-based works from the gallery's permanent collection 
and includes local and international artists as well as historical and contemporary photography. So you have um, historical photos from Walker Evans, uh, Harry Callahan, and contemporary works from artists such as Jungo or Guchong that look at issues of identity and propaganda and transformation in in China, as well as um, works that appropriate imagery and in design and advertising from Cindy Sherman, Richard Prince, Barbara Kruger. It's a, it's a pretty large show with over 60 works. Yeah, Andy Warhol got uh, got, a, got a mention in that. Uh, I'm just yeah. looking at some of the uh, the yeah. featured artists and pictures and promises. And, and, and I guess Andy would be in the borrowed brand section uh, in, in terms yeah. of yeah. Ma- ma- manipulating, yeah. manipulating yeah. advertising. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, so, yeah, it's definitely a, a testament to that continuation in the modern contemporary art. So what sort of uh, buzz are you hearing about this? This is, a, this is something that you've been working on for quite a while. It is now officially underway. Uh, it's just the first mm-hmm. weekend. And, of course, we need to remind our listeners that the art gallery is following all of the appropriate COVID protocols. Can you just walk in these days, Diana, or do you have to have a reservation along with expecting single traffic flow and social distancing? You know, it's um, it's... Right now, you can, I mean, we recommend people book online and you can you can uh, reserve your time. So we are doing online timed entry. Okay. You can also show up. So you can show up and they'll book you in right there at the front desk. Okay. Uh, we are, we're masked, our, since, since our reopening in June, we have required masks to be worn. Of course. You wear uh, your mask. There's, there's plenty of space in the gallery. You know, we, we are, I think we were always naturally socially distanced in the gallery because you there's very little to touch. You can, you're not um, able to touch artwork. Sure. And, you know, you've always keep a space between you and others when looking at work. It's something um, you do together as a household or, yeah. or on and, your own. And it's something that and, people know to expect when visiting a public facility like the art gallery. It's, you're right across the street from me, Diana. I'm looking forward to walking a block oh, and, and, uh, and, and uh, enjoying these three new shows. Best of luck with the crowds. Well, we open at 10. All right. Thank <laughs> you for doing this this morning. We appreciate it. Great. There's Diana Frundle, the interim chief curator for the Vancouver Art Gallery with three new shows underway on the main floor. That is our program for today. Mike Agarbo and the gang standing by with the app show. That's it for me. I'll see you next weekend. Thanks to Julie Wong and Andrew Ferreira. And mostly, thank you for joining us. Have a great day. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. <laughs> and Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.